Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to After Law, broadcasting from the beautiful South Hello dear listeners, welcome to Akadung Millwall, my name is Nick Hart. Welcome to one of my random fixtures from the past shows. As you can probably tell from my voice, I am in the throes of the latter stages of COVID-19. I think I'm released back into society after uh, Wednesday, so from Thursday onwards which kind of knocks out my trip to Millwall tonight, so I'm bored. And what do I do when I'm bored? I decide to get on the old number generator and see what random year from the past we can look at from the perspective of Millwall Football Club. And today's year is 1926, so I've gone back to uh, February 15th, 1926, in the Roaring Twenties. And the nearest uh, fixture that I've found to... That particular date was a good one, actually. Cholton Athletic won. Millwall 4, a away win at the Valley. Played in front of 22,000 on February the 13th, 1926, in the old Division 3 South. I do have um, a newspaper report for that fine away win for the Lions at, at the Valley. And this one is from a newspaper... Uh, The Westminster Gazette, um, local newspaper, but uh, I think a lot of the local newspapers back then seemed to often take, you know, wider stories than just their own parochial area. So this is from the Westminster Gazette, dated the 15th of Feb, 1926. The headline is Millwall's Strength, a fine halfback line, Cholton outplayed, Cholton Athletic won Millwall 4. Mill defeated Cholton at the Valley by four goals to one. They thoroughly deserved their victory. Their third uh, away win uh, in league games this season, showing far more skill and understanding in attack and being much steadier under pressure. Their great strength lay in the half-back line. This would be the old football tactics for younger listeners. Half-backs were, I suppose, equivalent to midfield, really, um, in modern parlance, uh, where Graham, Bryant and Amos acquitted themselves admirably, it says. Parker, the centre-forward, was closely marked by Armitage of Charlton, but he led the Mill attack with dash and spirit and received excellent support, especially from Mule and Chance, the right wing, on the right wing. Uh, the best of the Charlton defenders was Patterson, who tackled with judgment and gave his forwards many excellent passes. Charlton started rather unsteadily, and in consequence, Mill had matters much their own way for some time. Charlton settled down, however, and set up some heavy attacks. 
In half an hour, Chance made a perfect opening for Muller to score for Millwall. And a free kick by Gore was headed in by Mool 10 minutes afterwards. So I'm going to guess that's about 30 minutes and 40 minutes. Mill 2-0 up. After the interval, Charlton were much overplayed. <laughs> overplayed. Within five minutes, Gore put Mills, put on Mills' third goal. And though Rankin got through for Charlton, Muller had another goal before, before, the, before the finish. So a little bit vague in its reporting there. But you get the, the picture. 2-0 at half-time and the line's pressed on to take the, the the two points nearly said three points there listeners uh, two points back in these these far off days in division three south um for a good win at at the valley Millwall would finish this particular season division three south in third position not a bad finish really when you when you weigh it up this would be under the management of the legendary figure of bob hunter who we've mentioned a few times and to whom i'm um uh, well, I've, I've placed the order for a plaque to go on the, the you know, the kind of uh, wall area of of the den in his memory because he's one of our great, great managers. And this is a good example of a typical Bob Hunter season. Mid-20s, we were building to a team that would eventually lift the third division South Championship in 1927-28. Bear in mind as well that back then to be promoted out of the third tier, you had to be champions. Only the champions got promoted. The bottom two would seek re-election. One of those two teams would be Cholton, our opponents in this particular game. But the Lions would finish third. Um, so no no reward for what was a pretty good season um, in 1925-26. Um, just picked out one or two um, names from the from the team here. I'll, actually, I'll run through the whole team because uh, I think it's worth it. Um, Joe Lansdale in goal. The two fullbacks were Horace Tilling. I searched because it's written as Telling on the Millwall History website, and I couldn't find Telling in Neil's Who's Who of Millwall players. And I thought that's that's not like um, Neil and and Richard Lindsay and 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 Dave Sullivan and and all the others to be lax and miss a player. And the reason is that it was misspelled. So it's actually Tilling, Horace Tilling. And Richard Hill in fullback position. The midfield mentioned by the newspaper, Alf Amos, Bill Bryant and Len Graham. We've mentioned Bill Bryant a few times on previous shows. And I believe Len Graham as well. The two wingers mentioned in the report, uh, Gore, Sidney Gore and George Chance. And then our front line this for this particular fixture, Alf Muller, uh, Richard Parker uh, and, and Andrew Lincoln uh, up front for Muller. And I've picked out... I actually picked out four names from the um, from the Who's Who book, which is a wonderful, wonderful repository of knowledge. Do vic- uh, visit victorpublishing.co.uk and find yourself this book, listeners. Do yourself a favour. It's got every Mill player that has ever pulled on the blue shirt for the Dockers and, and the Lions since formation in 1885. It is worth £20 of your money, I believe me. Um, but just as an example... I've picked out uh, first of all Richard Hill, uh, who played in in the fullback position in this win at the Valley uh, on the thirteenth of February, nineteen twenty-six. Richard Henry Hill was one of our um, long-serving players, nineteen nineteen to nineteen thirty. He played for Millwall. So after the First World War, played three hundred ninety-two games for the Lions. He was born in Mapley in eighteen ninety-three, and he passed away in Coventry in nineteen seventy-one. His career took in some some wide-ranging um, clubs. Boys Brigade Football, 
must be a local youth club where he comes from, Dakin Street Old Boys. He was then in the Grenadier Guards during the First World War. We'll come on to the, the little biography that uh, the book so wonderfully supplies. Grenadier Guards during the Great War. Then he signed for Millwall Athletic in July 1919. And after leaving us, he went on to Torquay, Newark Town, Mansfield Town as a trainer. Played for, uh, I think he may have trained for Sutton. Coventry City became a trainer and then Torquay and Coventry again as trainer. Making his debut for Millwall certainly in a, uh, a tour draw against Brentford in 1922. Uh, Richard Hill, known as Dick, as, as the old-fashioned, got humorous overtones, of course, nowadays, but Dick served in the Grenadier Guards in the Great War and was spotted whilst playing in an army representative side. Um, he was Jack Fort's long-term partner, and he was actually one of our England caps, which makes him notable. Um, he was capped for England versus Belgium in 1926, and was a member of the um, the famous 1928 27-28 uh, Division Three South winning uh, title winning side that would be promoted to the second division as champions, all conquering side. Uh, Thirteen seasons at Den before finishing his career at, at Torquay. Um, he was associated with Coventry after uh, he left the game for over thirty five years, working for that club until just a few weeks before his death in 1971. Dick Hill, Richard Hill, Dick Hill. 392 games for the for the Lions. So he was playing in in um, a fullback position. I've laid out my team sheet, actually, in old-school style, listeners. You'd love it if you could see it. 5-3-2, two, two fullbacks, three midfielders, and then a front a five-man front line. Um, my school, when we first started playing uh, school football, going back to Castlecombe in Mottingham, in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, actually used to line up in that 5-3-2 traditionalist system. None of your 4-4-2s or 4-4-3s that were prevalent in the game for us at the time. No wonder we got beat a lot. I th- I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming that as my poor performance as a, as a footballer because I was awful. Um, anyway, Richard Hill we've done. Sidney Gore playing on the wing. Uh, Sidney Percy Gore, to give him his full name. Uh, was an outside left for Millwall, playing in this particular 4-1 win over Charlton. Uh, played for the Lions between 1923 and 20, 27. 129 games, scorer of 13 goals for Millwall. He was born in Faversham in Kent, 1900, passing away in Ashford, also in Kent, in 1987. Um, his career uh, began during the, the course of the First World War, actually. He was playing for Faversham Rangers in 1916. He had a trial with Gillingham in 1920, Sittingbourne, before signing with Millwall in May 1923. After playing for us, he would return to more Kent, Kent football, Chatham, Gillingham, Ashford Town, um, before um, joining their committee, actually, uh, Ashford Town's committee in, in 1963. He, was a, he finished as a groundsman after his career at uh, Gore Court Cricket Club in Sittingbourne, and he was a blacksmith stocker. Wow in the railway works at Ashford, where he worked until his death in uh, aged 86. Steam trains, listeners, younger listeners. I I don't remember steam trains. I can't claim to be that old. Um, I remember them, you know, kind of, uh, I've seen old old, uh, black and white footage of the steam train system. Um, But he was a blacksmith stocker, so I'm going to guess that's kind of like an assistance to a blacksmith. Um, Skilled trade, I'd guess, Sidney Gore. We've mentioned already Alf Muller, and I think Neil Fissler in one of, um, or quite a few of our shows, has mentioned Alf. Um, 
one of our, our better strikers, in actual fact. He was certainly top scorer for this particular season we're talking about here, 1925 to 26. Um, he's listed as an inside forward, so not a centre forward, but one of the uh, the inside men. I suppose in modern terms, you'd think of him as a kind of a number 10, this 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 mythical number 10 role that you hear so much about. Um, but he played 234 games, scoring 75 goals for us, so a very useful player for Millwall between 1919 and 1927. He's actually listed in his in his biography here as an outstanding footballer with superb control and an excellent range of passes. He appeared for the professionals versus the amateurs. You don't get fixtures like this anymore, do you? Uh, professionals versus amateurs, uh, which was an England trial match at Highbury in 1925 and played for the FA um, in a representative game. Um, he was seen as the brains, as they put it here, the brains of the Millwall attack and was the leading scorer in three of his seven seasons, including this one we're talking about here, 1925-26. He was also a fine cricketer who was a youngster uh, batted with W.G. Grace and played in middle order for Essex County Cricket Club and Devon, one of the minor counties. By trade and engine turner, he served as a professional to Plymouth Cricket Club, coached at Falmouth, and then in later uh, life he was uh, coaching both football and cricket at Lansing College. Uh, he had a brother, Frank Muller, who also had a spell at Millwall. Um, quite a, one of the things that really strikes me, listeners, about these old players is they were, you know, we have this phrase now that we're a working class club, and that's that's true, I think, especially in Millwall's case, but in, but in others too, especially ours. But these really were working class men. They had they had come from hard labour often before football football being a means of escape from that um, factory or dock or, you know, rural, whatever you like. Hard work is hard work, wherever you are. And they knew what it was like to work hard. Many of them of this era, particularly, had served in the in the forces during the, during the Great War. And they knew what it was like for life to be hard. And, you know, I, I don't wish that upon anyone. And, and it's easy to knock modern footballers, but we all live in a very different era to... The likes of Alf. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy to forget how lucky we are. I think that's probably the best way that I can sum it up. His career took in West Ham, Corinthians, Catford South End, which is a, a club I'll come back to, actually, strangely, as it might sound. Catford South End. Leighton Stone um, as an amateur for Millwall. Um, then he played for Norwich, Watford and Margate before coaching at Lansing, a private school. And the final name I've picked out here is one that was a bit of a mystery to me. I was looking for Telling, T-E-L-L-I-N-G. I couldn't find trace of him anywhere. But anyway, it turned out from searching on some of the old newspapers, his name was actually Horace Tilling, T-I-L-L-I-N-G. Um, played 64 games for Millwall, 1922-28. to 28, Born in New Cross, local lad, in 1896. He died in Hemel Hempstead in 1955. Um, he was an Army International, Horace. He said, it was, I just like the biography of this, so I thought I'd have to include it. Um, an Army International, Horace was said to have a kick like a mule. A kick like a mule. That, that I think many people from New Cross, where he hailed from, do have a kick like a mule, in my experience, listeners. He worked as an indexer. Um, office job, I guess. Indexer. He scored a penalty in his first home game against Portsmouth, but had to wait until January 1926 to dislodge Jack Fultz, one of the big names. He's on our, um, the calendar that we did last year, Jack Fultz. But despite a couple of runs in the side, the long-serving Fultz always returned, always pushed Tilling out, Horace Tilling out. Known as Big Ben, 
That was his nickname, Big Ben Tilling. Not sure why. Uh, he would leave for Northampton, and after his football career, was over as an engineer at the Ovaltine factory in Apsley until he died from a heart attack aged 59. He's also had a son, Morris Tilling, who also played for Millwall. Um, nice to be able to mention these players. I, I, I actually was on a bit of a red herring trying to do some research, and I thought I might have found a player um, that Neil had missed, which I was obviously going to bring to his attention, wasn't I, listeners? But then actually he hadn't missed it at all. He'd included it. And it was me that was chasing a red herring with a misspelled surname. So there we are. Let that be a lesson to me. Knock me off my high horse, wasn't it? There we are. Millwall 4, um, Charlton 1 at the Valley. I've mentioned the Valley already. Um, I think I've uh, it's always always found it an interesting ground. I know it's easy to laugh at the, the rivalry with Charlton, but the, the history of Charlton is actually an interesting one. The Valley itself was created relatively um is it recent no it's, no it's probably not long after the creation of the den actually it was opened in 1919 so just a few years after us um and it was originally a a, a chalk pit a sand and chalk pit and the, the Charlton had played at a variety of locations around Woolwich and Charlton and Plumstead searching for a new home and eventually they settled on on the valley which as I've said was um if a chalk pit and um, the their initial task, which they used volunteer labour for, um, was to actually flatten an area so that a football pitch could be laid on in this pit. Basically, um, the terracing and well, certainly there's no stands nor terracing for some time after the initial game because that was just um, earth banks around the pitch. And I think it was a fairly rocky start, quite probably quite literally, judging by the creation of the ground for the for the club. They actually played away from the valley just a couple of seasons before this particular fixture that we're talking about here. During 1923-24 they played in Catford, a place called um, the Mount Stadium, which is actually located in Mountsfield Park, if anyone who knows Catford. Um, there's no trace of that stadium left nowadays, but it was it was where the park is. In, in, in Catford and that was the home ground of another club who we've mentioned already Catford South End um, and they were going to merge with them at one point but that, that, that all fell through um, they would eventually return to the valley and it would become terraced it was a vast ground I remember going there as a kid in the 70s I used to alternate going Millwall one week and to Cholton the other week depending on who's you know who's at home I'd always favour Millwall if I could but um, there was no away travel back then. We didn't have the money for for anything, and, and TV coverage was was um, you know fairly fairly minimal by modern standards. So if you wanted to see football of a Saturday afternoon, you tended to go to your local club and you know another one on a, on another week. The nearest club to where we lived was Cholton, one six one bus ride away from us. So it used to go fairly often to um, to see Cholton. It was a vast ground. It was already in the stages of starting to crumble because um my dad always used to say oh, it was much bigger in his time and you know this, we're talking about probably the the uh, post-war period when it would held seventy-five thousand. i think that was its record capacity it was a vast ground anyway i don't think you, you would have struggled to have got that number in there safely by modern standards but i do remember in the early 70s the who played a famous concert there which i think was listed as the loudest ever played and there was there was a huge crowd in in the in the stadium for that. It was almost predominantly terracing. For anyone that actually made it there, you'll know what I'm talking about. Vast East Terrace, 
and then there was a covered end all open so the covered end got got its name and just one rather odd looking stand with like four arc a four arched roof which gave it a slightly unusual um feeling big ground but always seemed to lack atmosphere as a, as a, as a consequence and that hadn't long been opened when when we played there in this particular particular game so they would famously have to leave the, the valley when it became deemed to be unsafe in the aftermath of the uh, 1980s emphasis on safety post Hillsborough and Charlton would play at Selhurst Park for a couple of seasons and I think they finished up at West Ham at one point before returning eventually in the uh, early 1990s um, there we are that's the story of the valley which hadn't long been opened when we played this particular fixture this 4-1 win um, part of a, a eternal good record, obviously, over Charlton, which we all know about, which we never cease to remind them of. Um, elsewhere, I just thought just for a bit of fun, before I leave, love you and leave you, listeners, I thought I'd have a look at and see what's going on in the Daily Mirror on this day, um, February the 15th, 1926. So I've got the front page of the Daily Mirror, um, which is, was big on photos, which is quite nice when you're doing a, a thing like this, because it gives you something you can look at and talk about. Um, Daily Mirror, Feb 15th, 1926, um, the largest daily picture newspaper, it says here. And we see on the front page some daring stunt flying, some American um, acrobats, aerial acrobats. This is the thing that used to get a lot of in the old movies where um, a lot of girls did this, uh, would, would kind of um, dance on the wings of biplanes as whilst they did stunt flights over... This is these pictures from Los Angeles. Uh, Miss Gladys Engel, one of the most um, venturesome, that's a good word, one of the most venturesome of American aerial acrobats performing mid-air stunts near Los Angeles in California. Why does she do it? She does it for the thrill of it, which is my kind of girl. Um, she's um, doing like a, a upside down, clinging onto the, 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 the wires and struts of this, of this aircraft. Very, very dangerous. Also pictured are, is a um, tennis duel to be played in Cannes, very exotic, Cannes in the south of France between Miss Helen Wills and the famous French, I think she was Wimbledon champion, Mademoiselle Suzanne Longlong. Um, this was a, looks like a, a kind of a one-off game um, to decide who was the, uh, you know, who would prevail uh, Helen Wills versus Suzanne Long. That's being played in Cannes in France, almost certainly um, for money in in the most exotic location available. Um, and finally, there's uh, there's a picture of Countess Vera, Countess Cathcart, who's been detained by the U.S. immigration authorities um, in the aftermath of being named as a co-respondent in a divorce case. Very shocking. With the Earl of Craven, who's next to him, next to her there pictured with a little clipped moustache um the co-respondent in is she's she's been named as uh, the third party in a divorce case uh but she's not got past the officials at ellis island in new york um would have detained her for some reason almost certainly because she's um a woman named in a divorce case and therefore you know the villainess of the piece on the back page, looks like Ireland have pulled off a rugby win famous rugby win page the home forwards the irish home forwards dashing play they say some good pictures actually some nice action shots of the rugby i don't know if this is in dublin or if this is in um it must be in dublin because it's uh the the picture here a bit of politics for you here listeners 
uh, W.W. Wakefield, the uh, the English captain, is presented to members of his uh, presenting members of his team to the Governor General of the Irish Free State, Mr. T. Healy, uh, before the match in Dublin, in which Ireland beat England by nineteen to fifteen. So this would be the precursor to the Republic of Ireland, which I think, from memory, was declared in the late nineteen thirties, thirty seven, thirty eight, something like that. Um, anyway, and that's enough dipping my toe in the. Uh, quagmire of irish english relations um some, some good action shots there of uh, the rugby union uh, and a win for the irish there we are so there we have it dear listeners i hope you've enjoyed this little on this day um i might try and do a few more of these as time goes along i quite enjoy it and um until the next episode until tomorrow when we'll be doing a post qpr post-mortem uh, until then, dear listeners, it's Arriva Dirty Mill, and bye for now. Thank you for listening to Aston Mill. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a cheeky little review. Arriva Dirty Mill. Till next time. Who do you want to watch? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.